and a lot of polarized issues, you get a lot of people who have become very invested in defending a position that they haven't thought about. Because you're not even discussing the issue, right? Like you left that way behind. Like now you're defending your identity, you're defending your reputation, you're defending your status. You're just trying not to look like、mm -hmm. a fool for having said it the way you said it. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com/slash/therationalview. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm revisiting the topic of being an effective. Advocate for evidence-based and rational policy. To do this properly, one must understand the science and how to influence people. I found in the past that countering anti-science opinion with ridicule, although very、uh, cathartic, is not helpful. I've learned that just spouting reams of evidence, however, as one might often do, is not helpful for those who have already made up their minds. Although this might be sufficient to convince neutral parties, it's not going to change any minds in a polarized debate. My guest today is an expert on what it takes to change people's minds. I hope you like what you're hearing. If you do, please press like on your podcast app. Please share it with your friends. David McCraney is a journalist and lecturer fascinated with brains, minds, and culture. He created the blog, book, and ongoing podcast. You are not so smart, which he calls a celebration of self-delusion. His most recent book is How Minds Change, all about the science behind how and why people do and do not change their minds, and the intricacies and nuances of persuasion. After finishing How Minds Change, he wrote, produced, and recorded a six-hour audio documentary exploring the history of the idea and the word genius, which is the subject of his next book. David McCraney, welcome to the Rational View.、Oh, so good to be here. Thank you for for taking the time to to chat with us on this important topic. This is one of the things I've I've been very interested in as part of the Rational View as to how to get people to discuss rational ideas、mm. and, and and you know get rational ideas into the public domain of policy rather than always having politicians responding irrationally. And part of that is changing minds and influencing people. Why did why did you feel the need to write this book? Well, the oh wow, the inception of this thing, <clears throat>、um, and I am on the same page as you on all the things you're desiring to understand. I'm on the board of、uh, the School of Thought and、uh, the Alliance for Decision Education, and, and all these orgs that are about trying to get critical thinking either in the schools or also、uh, just out there.、Um, how did this book start? Well, this book started because I. Uh, I've had this podcast for a long time, and I've written books about biases and fallacies and heuristics. And I mainly, you know, I like to say my beat is just motivated reasoning. And、um, if you've never heard that、mm. term before, I'm sure your audience has. The、uh, I'm sure you have too. But if you haven't, you you you're familiar with what this is.、Um, like if you've ever had a friend、mm -hmm. who、uh, they just recently fell in love with somebody, and you're like, what reasons do you have to、uh, like this person? 
And they'll say something like, uh, it's everything, like the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they cut their food, um, the music they're introducing me to. And then a couple months later, you ask, uh, because they're breaking up with that person, what reasons do you have to be breaking <laughs> up with that person? And they'll say things like, well, honestly, like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I don't like the way they walk. Like, they walk all weird and jangly. And I don't like the way they, the, the, <laughs> their voice feels like they're scratching my bones. And the other day I saw them cutting a candy bar with a fork and knife. Like, I can't take it anymore. The, um, on long road trips, the music they make me, uh, the music they make me listen to. Uh, so reasons for will become reasons against. When the strange. motivation to uh, justify and explain the way you feel has changed because your emotional state has changed. So you cherry pick the evidence differently. And that's motivated. All cognition is motivated and all reason uh, reasoning is motivated. And that's something I've been talking about for a long time. Mm. Um, I had someone at a conference after uh, my lecture come up to me, and this was before conspiracy theories had entered into mainstream politics the way they have currently. But this person was, she was like, my father has fallen into a conspiracy theory and I'm wondering what do I do to get him out of it? And at the time I said something which was a kind of a, a paired in an old phrase from um, secular humanism, which was, you can't reason a person out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. And mm-hmm. in the course of writing this book, I don't, believe that anymore but I, I at the time that felt like good advice but as soon as it came out of my mouth i was like Ugh. like what an awful thing to tell someone it's so pessimistic and i don't really know if that's true i know i don't know enough about this topic to be telling people stuff mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. and so there was that and at the same time uh this was happening the attitudes towards same-sex marriage in the united states were shifting very dramatically and I had someone come on my podcast to talk about this, and they said it was the fastest change in public opinion ever recorded. Roughly 12 years with the, a lot of it in the mm. course of two or three. And it was 60% opposed, and then 12 years later, 60% in favor. And I just imagined, well, what happened in those millions of people's minds between these two points in history? Also, what would happen if I took somebody from now and sent them back in time to talk to themselves? how would they disagree? Like, what would it be like? Would it be an argument like people argue about wedge issues today? So these two things together, I was like, I want to understand this deeply and I don't want to do Wikipedia with jokes. I want to actually go out there and understand this. So I embedded with Mm -hmm. cults, pseudo cults, religions, conspiracy theory communities, Westboro Baptist church, uh, 9-11 truthers, flat earthers. That must have been difficult. Then I spent time with people who (laughs) left those communities and ask them, you know, what encouraged you to leave? How did you change your mind? And then I spent time with activists and other people who have rhetorical techniques where they change people's minds at their front doors or they do, um, they go out to college campuses and they spend like 20 minutes to 40 minutes having deep conversations. And then I took all of that and went back to scientists who study this for a living and who've been doing it for their careers and said, here's what I've seen, help me understand it. And so it was a very Mm on-the-ground, in-person reporting exercise. And uh, it resulted in a book that is just different than most books on this topic. It's not How to Win Friends and Influence People, Part 2. It's uh, not how to, like, win a negotiation. It's a completely different way of approaching all this, because I had to change my mind, or I did change my mind, and, of course, I'm writing it on a number of levels. So that's how it became a book. Okay. So... 
um, you, you've obviously put together a formula that you believe works to change people's minds. And you, you say that it's not uh, these other books. It's not how to negotiate. It's not how to um, win friends and influence people. Can you contrast your approach to, to maybe more traditional or more standard approaches that have been published before? Is there, is there something unique here that you've, you're bringing in this book? Yeah, I, I, uh, I spent time with people who do deep canvassing, uh, street epistemology, and other communities who A-B tested their techniques over the course, like with deep canvassing. It was when I met them, they had, had conducted 17,000 conversations recorded on video. And they kept what wow. worked and they threw away what didn't. And they just sort of zeroed in through A-B testing. And street epistemology was doing the same thing. And when I met the deep canvassers in Los Angeles, they were being studied by multiple uh, sci scientific organizations because they were able to conduct sort of a kind of research that you could never fund through a university. You just didn't have the time or money or staff mm -hmm. to do something like that. And what I found fascinating was all these different groups had never met each other and they usually weren't familiar with the scientific literature that supported what they were doing. But through A-B testing, they had landed on the exact same formula. They had, and if they did it, in, if they had like steps, the steps were almost the same steps in the same order. And wow. the social scientists and, and neuroscientists that I brought this to, and um, whether they're in sociology or anthropology or psychology or whatever, they would usually point me in the direction of some things like motivational interviewing and the CBT. There were elements from these things that all were similar and there was a literature behind this, whether or not they were aware of it. And mm. the difference here is, uh, I learned later, is that they're, you know, minds, our minds are always changing. So, you know, and we can talk about that, but like through uh, dopaminergenic responses to surprise and novelty and ambiguity, we update our priors. And the, this can come from learning, from education, from experience, from all sorts of things. But sometimes it comes from other human beings. And these other human beings are agents. They have autonomy. And there is a different way of approaching that kind of information. And if that's the source of the messaging, there are a couple different models. There's the elaboration likelihood model, the heuristic systemic model. They sort of describe what happens when a person is, is taking in a new message and evaluating it for uh, either accuracy or emotional like uh, relevance or how it will affect their certainty. But the, broadly, they go in these persuasion techniques, they'll fall into two categories. There's topic rebuttal and technique rebuttal. And topic rebuttal is when both parties are in a good faith environment and they're playing by the same rules and they're both aware of that. It's sort of formalized. And there was like behind mm -hmm. a lectern, Two people look, talking to one another. There's rules. There's a, a debate. It's but it's formal. Like there's a there's someone is is moderating this, or perhaps we're doing it through the uh, uh, paper system in, in academia, where this is going to go out and it's going to be vetted, and there are going to be replications. And there are going to be people who are going to try to tear it apart. Mm -hmm, in those mm -hmm. environments, this you know the fact based approach is useful and it gets us somewhere, but that's an artificial environment that we created for that purpose. The other kind of technique, and the one that I talk about the most, is, is technique rebuttal. And this is when you hold space for another person to explore their reasoning process, their chain of reasoning. So they're going to explore not just uh, where 
what motivates and drives their conclusion, but they're also going to start to examine their priors. They're going to feel cognitive dissonance if it's available to them, and they're going to feel uh, a, a intense desire to sort things out and to notice the, their epistemological framework. For, and all these are things that have usually never been articulated. So it's like mm. a, get it, uh, a, a guided metacognition where I'm not debating you. It's way different than that. So it's, it's, uh, I'm okay. Instead of, uh, me holding a position and you holding a position, I want to win and I want you to lose and you feel the same way. Instead, we're going shoulder to shoulder and we're saying, isn't it fascinating that we disagree? I wonder why. What if we teamed up and tried to solve a mystery together? And the mystery is, why do we disagree? And in mm -hmm. that sort of framework, okay. both people have an opportunity to discover maybe they're both wrong and maybe they're both right. And it's a, it's, it's a desire for both parties, if it's a fact-based issue, to get closer to the accuracy. If it's an attitude-based issue, it's to figure out maybe my sample size is small or maybe it's skewed. And if it's a value-based thing, it's just like, oh, maybe we could discover we have sh a shared value here or a shared goal or a shared problem. And it avoids all the things that usually get in the way of one of these well, usually the things that absolutely derail a conversation like this. So it's really useful for, for difficult issues. It avoids reactance. It avoids uh, social and identity threat and all these other things. Mm -hmm. And it allows mm -hmm. people to have conversations about very difficult topics that get somewhere. Yeah, that, that's something that I've, I've also found in, in you know, digging into this issue is that you need to approach with empathy and listening because as soon as you challenge someone's beliefs, they, they close up, right? They, they are no longer, they are impervious to facts and evidence. If they're being, if they feel they're being challenged, they'll double down mm. no matter what evidence you bring to the table. You need to have an open space to, for them to feel comfortable to discuss things with, uh, with others and, and to explore. So I, I like, you know, the approach of, you know, why do we disagree? Let's both bring our preconceptions to the table. Um, and you say you, you, you've taken this from um, these canvassers who have a lot of data on this. So this is very interesting. Um, has any of this been published mm -hmm. like scientifically or is this, this is just, um, you know, where, where does your data come from on this? Yeah, yeah. This is the deeply researched uh, by uh, Brockman and Calla have the, the paper that has the both citations when it comes to all this. It had an interesting history because the, the first people to research it, the, um, the grad student committed like some pretty bad uh, fraud and, and it really threatened the research. Uh, oh, he no. copied and pasted data from another study and uh, who knows why he did it. But he, when he did it, it was a big news because the first time deep canvassing was studied scientifically, that first paper uh, had was one of the most cited papers in the history of psychology. It was made front page news, the New York times and, uh, and then when it turned out that he'd committed a fraud, it was like, oh, wait, does that mean that it doesn't work? And so another <laughs> another set of researchers had to come in, Brockman and Callum, and they had to start all over. And they talk about being watched, like the, the, the media and the scientific communities were like, okay, let's see. And so that, when that came out, it was, uh, uh, and they, they've continued to research them. They, there's this ongoing, lots of people go out there. It's got a, a very high success rate. Uh, much higher than any other uh, sort of uh, certainly anything like the canvassing world or like political outreach uh, gets monumentally more powerful than that. Um, in fact, almost all of that doesn't work. Like it just works to uh, 
if your people are already on your side, it helps convince them to go vote. That's pretty much the only thing it's good for. Getting people who mm-hmm. aren't on your side of an issue, pulling them over to it, like nothing is is effective like this is. And but did you have numbers? Is there? Yeah, is there... I think it's like uh, I think it's like twenty eight percent somewhere in that range, like effective versus a non intervention. Twenty eight percent more effective than than what than just uh, handing a person a flyer or trying to beat him over the head. Uh, the, which, you know, scaled up, that's enormous. That will changes elections and everything. Um, that's huge. The, the, as far as like comparing it to pure fact-based approaches, uh, in a sort of academic domain or, or over a contentious issue or basically just internet mm-hmm. arguing stuff, that research is ongoing. So I don't think they have hard numbers on that yet. Um, but they're expanding it into all sorts of things. They're, they unfortunately the research has to go where the funding will, will allow it. And so it's on who, what wins political campaigns currently. But I, like yourself, I'm interested to see it applied to just how does this work on flat earthers or how would this work on, um, mm-hmm. QAnon or something, um, or vaccine hesitancy. I can say that just like, and this is just anecdotal, but like it, I've played around with it, of course, many times. I, I got to do it in Sweden on stage with the spokesperson for the flat earthers, Mark Sargent. And it was a great experience. Oh, wow. He, uh, we got to the point where he's like, I have to admit, I do not have, I do not know for sure. And I, my mind could be persuaded on this. And that was in front of an audience. And you really shouldn't do it in front of an audience because people get all those uh, social primate uh, fears <laughs> will come up with, I don't want to look like a fool in front of my peers and all that. Um, but I do know that like, uh, I, I tend to, I've been doing it uh, on tour here lately. I'll try to do something very um Neutral. Do you want to try it out? We can do it real fast. It's fun and easy and it takes five minutes. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, here's man. a good example of it. And this is a way to do it quickly in, in, in a neutral domain. Okay. So here we go. Um, what is the, just something easy. What's the last movie you remember watching? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be the last movie you actually watched. Just the last one you can remember. The last movie. I watched. Oh God. That's, um, I think I've, been watching a lot of kids' movies with my sons. <laughs> totally okay. Totally okay. <laughs> so, um, oh, no, I, I know. Here's a good one. I watched Oppenheimer. That was oh, so that's perfect. Um, so easy question is, like, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, it was a good movie. Enjoyed okay, it. Okay, cool. So you, Oppenheimer, liked it, good movie. If you were to, let's say you worked for Netflix and you wrote that little bit of text that goes in the box and... That's for people like me who are going to be going like, do I want to watch it? Do I want to watch it? What would be your little text for Oppenheimer? Um, provides um, great insights on uh, uh, pivotal moments in history during the war. Um, I would say um, investigates the personalities of the of the physicists behind the the bomb mm-hmm. and their personal journey through. Uh, realizing what they've done and, and interacting with the political system. All right. Okay. Got a little, got a little idea what it is. Said you like that. Now let's imagine you were a movie reviewer and you just went from zero to 10, but like zero is like everybody involved in making this movie should go to federal prison for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and, uh, and 10 is um, everyone involved in making this movie. Uh, everyone in the United States is required to kiss all their toes on a certain, on like, on like Christmas morning. <laughs> so like, what would you give Oppenheimer in that scale? Uh, I, 
I can give it a seven. Seven. Okay, so I'm interested here. Like, like it, you said it was good. It's pretty good. Give it a seven. Seven is only three points away from everybody's got to kiss their toes. So I'm, I'm wondering, though, like what keeps – that's pretty high. It's higher. It feels mm-hmm. higher than it was pretty good. I felt like you should have lit sparklers and ran around the room. But I'm going I'm <laughs> to let it be seven. But I'm wondering how come, how come it doesn't get to an aid for you? Uh, I would have, I would have liked more. As a physicist, I would have liked more physics, uh, and uh, you know, more investigation of some of the other um, areas that were going. On. It was very, I mean, it was very focused on Oppenheimer. Obviously, it's named after Oppenheimer, but there was a lot of other work in the background in Chicago and in, even in Canada doing uh, that. I would have liked to see more of in terms of you know all of the efforts to that came together to to make this happen. So I think, you know, it was, it was good for what it was looking at the one physicist's personal struggles. Um, but I think, you know, there were, there were, there was more to the story that I would have liked to see. Nice. That's good. I, I'm wondering, there, I hear you like, like the sci- the science and the physics and the, are there any movies that have had a better approach or in your, in your, by your estimation to a science, physics, math, scientists doing their thing, anything that gets higher than seven that uh, tried that out in any way? Ooh. Um, so, yeah, I guess there haven't been a lot. Um, I don't think it sells very well to the general public, so maybe that's my personal um, yeah. bias uh, showing through that I like uh I like the the scientific details. I mean, there's been some good mathematician ones. There was um, uh, Beautiful Mind, mm. which was kind of nice looking at the... What would you give a Beautiful Mind on that scale? Um, yeah, I would say it was... It was uh, in terms of the, the, the math... Or just as um, a movie, again, just as a movie in general. Uh, as a movie, yeah, that... That one, I don't know. I may, I might go to an to a to an eight on that. See, here we go. See, and, and you can feel we're getting somewhere, right? Like, because my next question is going to be like, well, what? How come? A, what does a beautiful mind have that Oppenheimer doesn't? That gives it one more point on the scale. Hmm. No, I mean that's that's it's a, a very good question, and it could be just my personal bias. <laughs> it's, well, it's always going to be your personal bias. That's okay. Yeah. Um, I, and we I can mean, we can stop here, but I want to show th- this as a demonstration of the, these rhetorical techniques. Because um, mm-hmm. I could also ask, how come not a six? And then we're going to talk about the things that it did well, and then we're and then we're going to talk about like what mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. definitely gets an eight or a nine, or and you already had an eight in there. And you'll notice, first of all, I'm not telling you how I feel about this at all, and I'm also not trying to copy and paste how I feel about it into you in any way, and. I'm holding space and listening and being non-judgmental in a, but mm. to the end of like mm-hmm. what I want is to reveal your biases. And what I want to do is reveal the, allow you a chance to articulate these attitudes. And this is an attitude based approach because we're going from mm-hmm. positive to negative on a, on a valence scale. But the, if I ask you if you like it, it's just, Yes. Like that's so easy. It's like bumping your knee against the table and me asking you, "Does it hurt?" You're just sampling your right, lim- right. your limbic response to this. It's your attitude 
know if every everyone who's ever walked out of a movie knows that they have some sort of feeling about it, whether or not you ever have a conversation with anyone about the about the movie, then if I ask you to articulate like a, on a scale, where do you put it? Just the just putting the doing the number usually results in one of these where you'll people will look up in a way, um, and there's a bit of metacognition going on there. But if I ask you why, and then mm. especially once we got to how come a beautiful mind gets an eight and this doesn't, there's a a long enough hesitation that like you're feeling in this conversation. I'm assuming like shit, we're going to talk about this for the whole time, like it's because because <laughs> you're in there, right? And, you, and you're, you're evoking like you're searching around inside yourself. Now, some of this is going to be pure justification. Like it may not be the actual reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of it's just an attempt to to to, to put words to an emotion, but the emotion is there and the putting the words yeah, to it is difficult. Yeah. So imagine we were talking about gun control and I was like, how do you feel about gun control? That's going to come up pretty quickly. Like I'm for it. I'm against it. And then I say, where you put yourself on a scale, that's going to take a little longer. And then once we start talking about why are you there on that scale and we're saying, why not higher? Why not lower? We're going to eventually get to things that you may have never expressed. And it's, it's, compelling mm. it feels good to be in that conversation once it gets rolling people t- typically want to stay in for at least half an hour and very rarely does a person walk out of that conversation with the same number they first said out loud um, mm. and oftentimes there might be an evocation of strong cognitive dissonance there if you start producing arguments that don't seem to work together there also might be these feelings of certainty and, and yeah. that, that get addressed and you'll notice, even if you don't say so out loud to the other person, if something is received wisdom or you're merely signaling in some which way or another that, and you can tell that, okay, I'm, I'm saying that because that's what I know that my trusted peers would want me to say. And you can allow that to be private for the other person and not, not say, ha ha, but, and it's really powerful in that regard. And I've seen it used on just mm. about everything. Yeah. When you get to those points where, you know, it's not coming from something they've thought about or something they've reasoned about. What? How do you? How do you handle that? Well, you lo- well, your job is to your job is to hold space. Like your job is to be the your help. You're being a servant in this regard, and they can mm-hmm. totally offer it back to you. And at some point late in the game, you might start saying, "Well, here's how I feel, and here's why I think I feel that way." But mm. if they've never thought it through, like you're gonna, uh, the steps are pretty clear. Uh, d- the you open by establishing rapport, and this is just because you're saying, I'm a social primate, you're a social primate, I'm not going to shame or ostracize you here. And you have total, uh, like I need, like at any point in time you want to say no to this or stop, you'll stop. But the goal, I do have goals here, and, I do, and one of my goals is I hope you see it differently, and if you're okay with that, let's go. And then you ask, if it's a fact, you want to ask for a claim, if it's an attitude, you ask for the, for the where they are on the scale. If it's a fact, you mm-hmm. ask for their certainty. Like, how certain are you? Like, are you 70% certain that today is Tuesday? That, that kind of thing. And then, right, right. Then you um, try to repeat the claim back in their own words and, and always do that. If they have their definition for things, needs to be the what we're dealing with in this conversation. And then, um, once you have the numbers and you're going around on the numbers, that's the, the big first stage. But the next thing you're going to do is ask, like, why does that feel like the right number to you? Or why does that feel like a good reason to hold that position? So you're going another level deeper into the person's epistemological framework. And that's usually never been addressed before. And yeah, the 
that's great. Like, this is an opportunity to hold your first actual opinion on the matter. You've been walking around voting and arguing on the internet without knowing what you actually think or feel about this. And this is an opportunity for to, to get that up front and at least get started, right? Yeah. I mean, this this is something that, you know, I've thought about as uh, on the rational view as well as like, what does rationality mean? And is rationality how we make decisions? And, and most times, uh, and even in, you know, in this little example, you, you realize that your first impression, your, your brain short circuits to how you feel about something. Mm -hmm. Like when I said, you know, I start putting numbers onto these films, it's not something I've logically worked out and, and compared one or the other before, you know, this is how I feel about them. And now it's a case of how do I rationalize what I've stated uh, to you or, or to someone else. And I, I think in a lot of polarized issues, you get a lot of people who have become very invested in defending a position that they haven't thought about. Right. And, you know, they don't want to change their minds. They don't want to see, be seen to walk back on it. Once you've post flamed someone in social media, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's because you're not defending. It's very difficult to spend that social <laughs> yeah. capital to come back because you're not even discussing <laughs> the issue, right? Like you left that way behind. Like now you're defending your identity, you're defending your reputation, you're defending your status. You're just trying not to look mm -hmm. like a fool for having said it the way you said it. You might pretend like you're talking about the issue, but that's not what's under discussion right now. And in that kind of conversation space, like we just had, like it's a it's an incredible feeling if you've never done this before, you've never had these kind of thoughts. Oh, well, I am currently rationalizing this. I am currently attempting, I have the feeling that's, that's there, but I'm a trying to put it into words. And I don't know if I even believe what I'm saying right now. I can tell that I'm doing the best I can, but uh oh, that's a good feeling. That's a good thing. That is a gift to give to someone. That is an opportunity for intellectual humility. They may have never, ever experienced before. And that's mm -hmm. one of the most powerful things about these particular rhetorical techniques. But you, you, you pointed out something very interesting when you, when you brought it up is that, you know, you could have argued me up or down. Um, it's true. Is there, should there be a warning on your book? Uh, what about people with nefarious purposes? Is there, is there some, it can totally be used for nefarious purposes. <laughs> you know, is this purposes. just the best um, debater? Here's, here's the way Wins I usually or? address that. And, and you're, you're right for pointing this out. Um, <laughs> and I've asked every, person who is deep in, in who does this like all the time and goes door to door how they feel you know and i get a variety of answers um if your goal is to reach the truth like if your goal is you know, in a fact-based approach if you are tr trying to get to what is the most factually evidenced uh based accurate like opinion you know what is if you're trying to get to the truth then mm -hmm. i don't know how we can then there's nothing nefarious afoot, right? We're just trying to get to the evidence. Sure. We're just trying to get to the truth. We're trying to establish whether or not your belief uh, in your certainty is justified. If we're talking about an attitude and your attitude truly is harmful, and then uh, that'll come out in the wash somewhere. But like, if I think your attitude is harmful and it's not, and my goal is is to use this rhetorical technique to, to explore that. If we're both being honest in using it, I don't get to get what I want. Like it's going to come out in the wash that it's not harmful because we're both working toward trying to determine whether my certainty or my valenced attitude is justified or if it's, uh, was based off of a, a very small sample size or a skewed sample size or a prejudice or a fear. 
that tends to come out if we're being very intellectually honest in the way we're going back and forth in the conversation. All that being said, uh, yeah, you know, a person who isn't going, who doesn't t tell you what they're doing with this technique and doesn't get full buy-in from you and doesn't, uh, like give you the opportunity to turn it back around on them. And is there, if there isn't like a full authentic, authentic transparency to, in, if for someone using a rhetorical technique like this, they can totally be used for nefarious purposes. That's why I don't advocate for that. I advocate like, don't, no, don't do that. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, and a person who would use it that way wouldn't actually be using the, uh, that wouldn't be, uh, true street epistemology or true deep canvassing. It would be, um, a form of coercion and manipulation that wouldn't count mm -hmm. as the kind of, uh, um, conversational technique that I'm advocating for. It would be a hybrid version for nefarious ends and make no mistake. I can also, it could also be, somebody could be using this for on an issue. I could support the position. Like I, they, I, they could be on my side and they would still be doing a, they still wouldn't be using it the way I'm suggesting to use it. They would be still trying to, to, to manipulate a person into voting a certain way without giving that person right. the intellectual freedom to decide on their own, how they feel about it. So mm -hmm. that some of that came from a, a, um, in motivational interviewing, this was that was part of this was developed there. The scale comes from that. Um, they people would go in for alcohol abuse or drug abuse, and they want to change their behavior. Um, and there was a, an issue where psychologists would uh, elicit the backfire effect because they would try to argue for the person uh, not taking the drug anymore or, or, or stopping drinking alcohol, and the other person would feel uh, challenged and they would uh, inspire reactance and the person would start counter-arguing internally and they end up with more arguments in favor of continuing the behavior than if they had never met the psychologist and they were having this downstream oh effect of the, the, the people were coming to therapy and they were ending up worse off than if they had never come. So the motivational interviewing was developed to keep the uh, therapist from taking this sort of position with, the, with their client and they would instead say okay look how much do you think you would like to continue doing this versus not doing it and they get the number scale and then they would do as you were pointing out they would have the person say give me some let's talk about arguments for not continuing this behavior versus the other side of the scale and so it's still on their side but they're only producing arguments for uh ceasing the behavior they came to cease and they leave with more of those arguments they do the other and that's directed by the mm. therapist because the client has asked do that to me so there is <laughs> they have asked to please manipulate me in this way so there, it's, it's transparent right, right. and there's so buy-in it's ethical yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting so so you know concentrating on on the one side of the issue and draws you that way it makes you consider it, I mean, is it, wow. But, but just the fact that they would bring up the issue and think about the alternatives would, would draw them the other way. So, I mean, the brain is a very mushy place. <laughs> it's a very mushy place. Like, um, the, what you're, what you're keying in on here is like, uh, like, you know, we contain multitudes, you know, this is a, this is an organism and there are multiple psychological mechanisms and many different uh, members of the committee up in here. Um, mm -hmm. As uh, David Eagleman once 
uh, told me it's like the we think we're the captain, but we're just a stowaway. When you get down to it, the the conscious part of us, and there is oftentimes the conscious part of us is just tie breaking. Uh, even if even if that, we have a pretty clear understanding now. There are two mechanisms at play whenever we argue. So um, this is a great leap. Uh, I I totally understand. Look, I've been in the skeptics and secular humanist world enough to know how powerful the word reason is. Okay, reason with a big old R. That is a real thing that we have used to do amazing stuff. Okay, we got to the moon. If you believe we went to the moon. Uh, <laughs> don't, 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 don't. <laughs> we went to the moon. We made the iPad, all that stuff using reason. It's it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. Facts, logic, propositions, great stuff. Uh, in psychology, reasoning is not the same thing as reason. And that there is, it's easy to get them semantically confused. Reasoning is just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe. Explanations, justifications, and rationalizations. Um, mm. those are going to be our best guess at why we think, feel, and believe something. And oftentimes they're going to be very self-serving. They're certainly going to make us look like we're the hero and that we're the good guy. And yeah. they're going to do all sorts of stuff that are motivated because we're such motivated reasoners. That reasoning model, uh, why would we have such a thing is because we have a portion of the brain in the left hemisphere. Uh, they call it the left brain interpreter. It's a, uh, its job is to be sort of the spokesperson and lawyer and PR agent for the whole organism. And uh, it, people who've had like corpus callostomies, split brain patients, you have a very severe epilepsy. They'll often uh, almost completely sever the connective tissue between both hemispheres to prevent the cascade and uh, mm-hmm. or to mitigate it. And in those situations, you know, you have a person who like one side of the body is dressing them, the other side of the body is undressing them. The two hemispheres can act independently in a lot of ways. And since almost all of our language is processed on, in one hemisphere, you can do things where you can cover up one eye and the part of the brain that can speak doesn't know what the other part of the brain is seeing. And you can show a person like an image of a horrible car wreck with mangled bodies and they'll go, ugh. And they'll say, what's wrong? Why'd you do that? And they'll say, I ate something terrible for lunch and it's not agreeing with me. Like they will completely lie, but they don't know they're lying. And so they call that confabulating. When a person, wow. they're attempting to create a believable narrative that based off of what they understand and what they can articulate and what they can uh, introspect, they're also trying to make it reasonable. It's something you would believe. And it needs to justify and rationalize the emotional state they're in. And the, all they it's, it's amazing some of the things they can they can have a person uh they can read they can see an instruction that says stand up and turn off the light and they'll stand up and go to do it and they say what are you doing and they're like i need to go to the bathroom like the part of the brain that speaks has no access to the part of the brain that's controlling the, the organism that read something right so the important takeaway here is we're always doing that it's just we just happen to have hemispheres that can talk we're always rationalizing and justifying. A self-rationalization always going confabula- on all the time. And sometimes it's confabulation. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's, it's, it's confabulation. And mm-hmm. the, the scale system that you're talking about, like the reason this works is um, that we have one system for producing arguments. We have one system for evaluating them. And the one that produces arguments is very biased, very lazy. Uh, it takes the easiest thing it can come up with and the most biased thing, the most self-serving thing. And that's what it goes with first. And the evaluation system, it's much more because it's keyed in to listen to other people's arguments. Should should I listen to that person? Could that be true? And very rarely mm. does the 
our, the system that produces arguments get evaluated by the system that evaluates it. You know this because of all the advice you've given people that you're not taking. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so like the, the scale system though, like sits you down and says, all right, you said you're a seven. Why not an eight? And then and almost immediately you go, huh, well, I mean, like it didn't come immediately out of you. It's going to take work. It's going to take ca yeah. calories. And then you, if, then I say, well, how come not a six? And we're, we're kind of balancing, but if I was to on purpose ask you to keep giving me more and more arguments on this side, what you're doing is you're slowly tilting yourself anew. You're re you're newly biasing yourself. Cause when you look back on everything you've said, you're like, well, I gave 15 arguments against being higher than this number. I must not really like this thing very much. And so you're coming up with a conclusion on the fly. It's all post hoc rationalization and mm. it's, astonishing how easily it can be evoked and how powerful it can be. Yeah, I, I was, you know, this, this, this has, this resonates with a lot of the, the things that I've, I've looked at as well. I interviewed uh, Professor Daniel Kahneman. He had uh, written the book, Thinking Fast oh, and wow, Slow. Yeah. And yeah, the same, the same thing, right? The initial judgment is, is, is a feeling based judgment and to get to rationality, to get to, to engage logical thinking is, is difficult. It takes energy. It takes, you know, it's a structure that the brain isn't used to using in, intuitively. Yeah. We, we, we have to work to make logical arguments and then get to a conclusion. And we don't like doing that. We like to mainly just, you know, base our, base our first reaction on a feeling because it's lazy and easy. Yeah. <laughs> when that becomes challenged, then it's like, oh, well, maybe, I, maybe it's, I misspoke. You're right. It's such an outward facing process. Like most of those logic systems, th what they're, the best we can tell, I mean, this is all speculation, but the, these are for solving problems. These are for goal-based behaviors that take lots of steps. It's all very outward-faced. Pointing it inward and saying, hmm, why do I act that way? Why do I think that way? It's interesting. It's like, um, it's like the muscles of the forearm, they aren't um, the adaptive pressures that selected these muscles and, and the evolutionary arc of having an arm that does these things is not for painting paintings. That's not what it evolved to do. But it can be employed in that way, quite miraculously, right? And a lot of the, yeah. a lot of these systems, they were, you know, are, what we're supposed to do is like, oh, I heard a noise, let's run that way. Or uh, bad thing, uh, poke with stick. These very quick emotional intuitive responses, very useful to stop, hesitate, and go, hmm, that is uh, not necessarily what it evolved to do. It can be used to do that, hence yeah. Oppenheimer. But uh, do not doubt that even though those people who worked together to create the atomic bomb were doing the mo the mo some of the most cognitively taxing things ever done by human beings, it was then used to blow up people, <laughs> which is basically an extension of sticking you with a spear. So mm -hmm. uh, we we contain multitudes. <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I, I'd like to think that the introspection gets you closer to the right answer. No. This is what I would big like old, to think. Big old hard no. Here's the thing that I hope your audience doesn't find horrible to, to accept. The evidence is pretty clear on this. The smarter you are, I'm talking like IQ here and uh, everything else that goes into it, the more cognitively adept you are. So let's just say smarter for whatever that means. The smarter a person is and the more educated they are, the 
better they become at rationalizing and justifying whatever they want to, whatever they feel motivated to, whether or not it's accurate, whether or not it's true. So the smarter you are and the more educated you are, the better you become at justifying what you feel motivated to justify. And that could be very far from the truth. And that's uh, a separate skill set. It's a separate value system. It's a separate whole set of cognitive mechanisms. Mm. And for the most part, and even people we know that we even have lauded and respected in history who are the smartest among us and had and, and the best read among us and the most educated, there are big old portions of their stories where they they used all those skills to uh, do stuff. The, 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 in hindsight, they're like, hmm, that's, that's iffy. The... Uh, the Steinbeck said that um, um, I'm going to try to get this quote correct. Uh, sometimes a man will choose to be uh, stupid if it allows him to do something his cleverness forbids. That's a pretty good summation of it. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, no, I think critical thinking is a separate skill. Is what I'm trying to say. Critical thinking is separate from being. Mm. Uh, like cognitively nimble, like it doesn't come natural, isn't a natural output of that. It's a separate skill set. I think this, this theory of, of how, how to change minds or how to influence people, um, reflects on how polarizing the social media has become because social media gives you what you want to hear. So you're thinking continuously, you reinforce your your biases on social media because you're 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 in a silo mm. and you follow this rabbit hole further and further down one path i think what this shows us is that we need to be to, to get to a more accurate representation of reality or or a more correct thinking we need to be exposed to the full diversity of arguments and you got to be open to that and you have to listen to these other arguments to get and you know Certainly, you can always find arguments on one side of an issue, but typically, I would expect that most of the arguments would lie in the direction of truth <laughs> or correctness. So, you know, if you're open and you're exposed to a variety of different arguments, you you can make better judgments. I mean, that's it just seems like common sense. To me. It seems that way. Like, but like the like we have some hard numbers in this. It's called the David Redloss did this. He wanted to did motivation did motivated reasoning have a a, a, a exhausted point. Is there a point where you you just couldn't trick yourself any further? And uh, he found it. It was great. He did amazing research uh, where they had people. It was a fake uh, election, and you chose the candidate, and then uh, you told all the things you'd like about the, the about a particular candidate, and then you watched a uh, fake news in the sense that the scientists created it, and you would. Um, get a steady stream of information about this uh, pretend candidate, and but they did, different groups were manipulated differently. Some would get twenty percent of the information they received suggested the person they chose wasn't the person, wasn't necessarily the kind of person they would vote for act, after all. And then another group got thirty percent, forty percent, and so on. And at the high range, you would get eighty percent of the new information you received suggested that the person you chose was counter to your value structure. So eight out of 10 of these news stories on this curated internet suggested the person you chose was a bad choice. And so they they would have the person, every uh, uh, week they had the person report how they currently felt about the candidate. And what they found hmm. was 
people who got 20 to 30 percent uh, counter attitudinal information tended to like their candidate more by the end of the entire campaign. There was a strong backfire effect. Uh, it wasn't enough to tip them over, so they just counter argued. They interpreted it as, well, when you think about it, uh, honestly, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of things that a person will do. But once above mm. 40% people were like started getting exhausted and they would uh, reach what they called the effective tipping point, where it was too many anomalies, too much counterattitudinal information. They had to accept, okay, I need to update my priors and this is not. So he put a hard number on it and he said it's roughly about 15%. Of, if, if about 15% of the new information coming into your system suggests that you are model is incorrect or incomplete uh, or in some way dangerously off base, you'll get that I might be wrong feeling. But typically what we do when we get that feeling is go on a confirmatory search for, but I'm actually right. And if we successfully mm-hmm. accomplish that, we'll backfire back into an even stronger attitude or a stronger sense of certainty. To bypass that, you need to go above 30%. It sounds awesome. Like, oh, wow, all we got to do is get three out of 10 of the new things a person learns about something to show them the truth and that'll do the job. But the big caveat here is that's a controlled study. People have the ability to pick and choose what they put into their minds more than they ever have, right? And what Mm -hmm. we typically do when we feel ourselves getting close to a, oh, I might have an epiphany and change my mind place, depending on the issue, depending on how motivated we are to hold our current position, we'll just stop looking at information that threatens it. And we'll go hard into, let me find a bunch of stuff that plays nice with this so that I can bolster myself against changing my mind. And we do that completely. We're truly unaware we're doing it. We're unconscious that we're engaging in that behavior. Mm. And the that's why we invented science, right? <laughs> because science is a system that prevents us from pulling that off. Even even then, though, people sometimes find loopholes and get get, get away with it. The, sure. It's it, it's a system for disconfirming your hypothesis, and if it's you got to, and then going where the evidence lies, uh, it's really tough to create a a system like that for yourself personally, which I advocate for. I hope we all give it a go, but like going online and saying, "Let me, hmm, I think this. Let me go see if I can disconfirm that." Very rarely do we do this unless someone reminds us we ought to be doing that. Wow. Yeah. That's so true. It's 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 very difficult to 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 question yourself and your beliefs. It's 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 something that you see it so rarely that it stands out when when somebody does change their opinion, especially someone who's you know high profile. Yeah. What what's your experience? Have you had high profile transitions? I mean, you said you <laughs> talked to the flat earther leader there on stage, and you got him. To oh yeah, be the, the, a little wishy washy. That was good. Like 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 the. I didn't do it myself, but the most incredible change of, I mean, I spent time with people who left like Westboro and, and Moonies and stuff like that. But um, in the book, I detail the story of Charlie Veach, who left the 9-11 truthers. Uh, and that was incredible. Like his whole life was basically destroyed by doing this because the thing that we all fear as social primates happened to him. He was ostracized on every level, excommunicated. They did heinous things. They took pictures of his niece and nephew and, and put them on a, to a pornography and sent them to his mom. And they, they contacted his employer and they, the, a lot of people in the nine 11 truth community went wild on this man simply because he said, I changed my mind. I don't, I'm no longer a nine 11 truther. And he was a pretty popular YouTuber when he did that. Me personally is, but like, so I've seen like those massive shifts that, uh, mm. like you, you can see from the outside. Wow. It does, 
a person who's afraid to to commit to that, I understand what you can have cognitive empathy for it because there will be con there will be consequences. Um, yeah. As far as me personally, like I've I've had a, a few of these a few great conversations, and I've shifted my views. You know, like I used to really consider reasoning to be biased and flawed. I see it much more as just I, I saw it as uh, flawed and irrational more than I did being biased and lazy. And I'm much more in the biased and lazy camp. Um, and I no longer think that anybody's unreachable. I just think that it just becomes, it'll be more increasingly difficult to do it, but I don't think anyone's beyond the, the wow. fail. It's more like thinking, um, the, you try to get to the moon with a ladder and you fail and you're like, well, the moon's unreachable, but it, you can get there. It's, it's just hard. <laughs> you have to use the right tools. Uh, uh, but yeah, mm. I, I, I do this all the time now. I, um, most the, recently I was uh, in Bridgewater University giving a demonstration and I spoke with someone there about their uh, position on gun control. And again, mm -hmm. my, I wasn't trying to get them to believe one way or the other. I was just saying, let's, let's explore it. And in the middle, in that mm -hmm. conversation, they went so hard the other direction by the end of our, we talked for about 20 minutes and it was, but it was because they evoked in the conversation where it came from and they, they had seen someone, uh, uh, really, they said, well, they saw a family member shot right in front of them when they were a kid. They hadn't mm. said that out loud ever. It was incredible. It came out, but it was there. It was available. And in that moment, they were like, hmm, this is where this is coming from. And it gave them power to like choose, how do I feel about the issue once I have this in front of me? So I've seen some really incredible like shifts in that in that regard. Um, mm. The fact-based issues, the, I think a lot of people, your, your frustration is going to come, like when you're talking to a flat earther, or you're talking to somebody who's got QAnon beliefs or moon landing denier or vaccine uh, hesitancy or any manner of conspiracy theory beliefs, whether it's reptilians or whatever. Um, a good rule of thumb here is to know that you're never actually discussing the facts of the matter. You're not actually discussing the conspiracy. That's almost irrelevant. The person is okay. in a conspiracy theory community. That's what you're talking about. And their motivations to hold this belief are related to their desire to be in this community more than they are to have a f accurate view of this particular issue. And a lot of people's frustrations mm. come down to, God, I, I keep, I swear I'm winning this. <laughs> like, I, like I have the facts on my side and I'm, I'm going bit by bit. Look, here's why the moon, here's why their footprints look like this. And here's why the shadows look like this. And here's the, like, I am knocking down every one of these arguments with facts. And they're going to continue scrambling because their motivation to maintain that belief is because they want to remain within that community. They're, they're getting their validation there. They're getting their, their feelings of social support from that. Um, they, they're, they feel like they're valuable as a human being. Their identity is wrapped mm -hmm. up in a, in a way that yours is not. And, so you have the freedom to look at things in an almost neutral way where they don't. And I find that a lot of people become very frustrated and it's almost always they're like this. I hear what you're saying, but what about these conspiracy people? They're impossible to reach. That's because you're trying to reach them through uh, an avenue that's not even important to the discussion as far as that person's concerned, really. Mm. Rick Harrington told me if there was, she's a sociologist, if there was equals MC square of social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. And, you know, if the ship's going down, you'll put your reputation in the lifeboat and you'll gladly let your body go to the bottom of the ocean. 
And we've seen this many times, whether it's uh, ritual suicide, uh, whether it's uh, war, whether it is, mm. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get vaccinated. What That's is true? What is the trade-off? What do you, what are you getting out of that? You're getting. So, so is your, is your goal, your motivation in, in applying your, your techniques to highlight the motivation to the, to the speaker, you're highlighting their motivation rather than, you know, this, you, you're trying to get them to say, okay, well, the reason I'm feel this way is because of my social standing rather than because of facts. Yeah. Well, one thing you, you're in the conversation space, if that's where you're going to go with it, that needs to happen on their side. And you don't need to, you don't have to say that you shouldn't say it out loud. It needs to, they need to come to that conclusion or that revelation on their own. And you're going to hold space for that to take place for deeply entrenched socially and in the in that people who are in that position oftentimes it's cults or uh, strong conspiracy theory communities most of mm-hmm. the and i detail a few of these in the book but the most the usual way a person off ramps is that there's someone who approaches them in a non-judgmental way and they are they hold space for them to discuss the issue but th- that person does not believe the thing and they seem to have the but they seem to somehow have the same value set as you as you do and so what you you approach it from how is it that we both feel like we have the same values we have the same anxieties and we have the same fears and we have the same like suspicions about things but i don't mm-hmm. believe the way you believe and yet at the same time i'm able to I'm able to like live by my values and I'm able to feel like I'm every day putting a little bit of effort toward the problems I think need solving in the world. And they offer that as, as just, uh, it's, there's, there's no like, Hey, and now come with me. It's almost, it's like, Oh wow. Uh, if I went with that direction, a lot of other things that suck in my life wouldn't suck so bad. And that's usually an off ramp out of there. And then in that space, the person has these, uh, conversations where, they can discuss the issue without the threat of uh, the other, the person who who's leaving that community doesn't feel threatened by that individual on, on any level. And they can have these open-ended discussions they can't have back with their um, in-group. And hmm. there will be moments of dissonance and moments of conflict, uh, whether purely logical or like this story doesn't match this story. They can't have that conversation with their own community, but they can have it with this person and on their own. This is almost always how it happens. On their own, they feel that conflict. Hmm, I need to resolve that conflict. And I know that this person's already resolved it one way and that's safe to me. And oddly enough, once that's there, something little will happen in their community that they will say, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. It wouldn't have been if they didn't have the off ramp. But it'd be something small, yeah. some little frustration that beforehand they could have like uh, forgiven. They just won't forgive this mm-hmm. time, and they'll say, "I'm out of here." So it's an interesting uh, path out of those communities. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for for discussing this with us. Um, learned a lot, and hopefully, we can all apply this in our day to day discussions. Uh, yeah, going yeah. Forward. Oh, I have so, a thing I, would, I, was, I was supposed to tell you. Um, I'm sure. I'm on the school. I'm with the school of thought, and we're launching something in Thanksgiving. I think people who are interested in this would like. It's called theconspiracytest.org. Just type it into your computer; it'll explain itself. Basically, a reptilian uh, person uh, will meet you there, and they'll ask you which of these conspiracies do you think could maybe be true. It's the one you are the most like. Maybe that one, and then 
you'll learn critical thinking skills by exploring it. So that's something we're, we're launching soon. I just want to make sure I get that out there. Oh, very cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the Rational View. Uh, for spending your time, I can send you a Rational View t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, that sounds awesome. I'll take a t-shirt any yeah. day. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.